0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usry, and I'm delighted to welcome Eli Craner to the program today. Eli is a former pro football player and high school football coach. He's now a writer with a column in the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and has recently published his second novel set in the Arkansas River Valley. The first one was entitled Don't Know Tough, and the new one, recently released by Soho Crime, is Ozark Dogs. Eli, the book opens up with a letter to an inmate at Cummins, one of the state prisons in Arkansas. Who wrote it, and what's the gist of this letter?
1: The author of that letter is a high school senior by the name of Joanna Fitzgerald, also known as Joe. And she lives with her grandfather in a junkyard and has lived there pretty much the whole of her life. He's raised her. And so, yep, she is writing to an inmate there. You can tell from what she's writing there that it is a... It's almost like a form of therapy. You know, she is exercising some old demons. She's got questions. She's got some pent-up anger, some things that she's kind of getting out. And there's four of those letters in the novel. So the rest of the book is just narrated, third-person, omniscient narrator. And what we have with her kind of breaks up, like, the acts of the book. She kind of comes in, and you get another one of these letters If you look at what's being said in those letters, if you look at just what she's feeling in those letters, I think it does a really good job. There's one in particular. I think it's the third letter where she's writing about this mother cow that she saw while driving way up in the hills, and it's baby calf. And I think that letter in particular does a really good job of encapsulating the entire theme of that book. And that letter's only like a page and a half long. But the whole thing, like when I go and do these things and do the readings, I read that third letter. Because if you're looking, you know, for, well, what's the point of this book? You know, it's it's in that letter she writes.
0: The tragedy of family yeah. is running real hard through this book.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. So that's it. it and it's, you know, talking theme here. So I teach to kids that are in our juvenile correctional facilities. I teach English 11 and 12. Before that, I coached for forever, and all the places I coached were high-poverty areas. So the cycle of poverty, Arkansas, for better or worse, is very ensnared in that, especially the parts that I've been in. And so it's just something I can't seem to get away from. And so what this book does is it takes this violent act— that happened in the past. And so like in my hometown, there have been like four murders in the last like 30 years, like total. And when that sort of stuff happens in a small town, it seems to just kind of hit different, you know? I mean, in a bigger city, stuff like that happens every day. But in, in a small town, for you know, everybody knows everybody. And so what this book really is doing is it's looking at that cycle of poverty that cycle of violence, and looking at how one act you know the epigraph is from Daniel Woodrell's winter's Bone, and it says this was how sudden things happened that haunted forever, and so this is what this book's about, you know those violent acts and then the aftershocks that they can cause in a small town, you know through different families because it's there's, there's a lot of characters, there's a lot of families there's a lot of a lot of members of each family that are all kind of in this really tightly compacted book.
0: Well, thank God it's not freezing rain like it was in Winter's Bone all (laughs) book long. (laughs) No doubt. We're, we're, We're in October, but about what year do you think we're in?
1: I would just say current. I had a date in there at one point in time, and then COVID happens, and then elections happen. And so I had to talk with my editor about that to kind of try and not date this story, you know, because there's some of the press material that goes around it. You know, they use things like a Hatfield and McCoy-style blood feud or, or star-crossed, you know, Romeo and Juliet lovers. So there's these real kind of classic themes that are in this book that have just, you know, been retold again and again. It's kind of our most basic and, and most primal stories just set in a small Arkansas town. So, I mean,
0: I would say a current, but I don't have an exact date in mind. Her grandfather, Jeremiah Fitzgerald's, He's pretty much our main POV character. We we see the most from his situation. And, of course, if you're from Arkansas and know your history, it seems like he's inspired a bit by Carlos Hathcock.
1: Yeah, yeah, you could definitely say that. So this book, when it first started out, it was a manuscript of over 100,000 words. As it stands now, it's a very short manuscript of about 64,000 words. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, right, <laughs> I know. And that's something I do try to pride myself on. You know, my first novel, Don't Know Tough, was just right at 70,000 words. And so I believe in, you know, clean lines and and keeping it concise. Jeremiah was probably the hardest character for me to get right because it's easy to get into cliches when you're dealing with a Vietnam veteran sniper, you know, all this stuff, you know. I didn't want this book to just be some sort of, you know, Hollywood revenge story, you know, where... I mean, Stephen
0: Hunter's already read those books. That's
1: right, yeah. So this had to be something different. There's a good buddy of mine by the name of Alex Taylor, who lives in Kentucky. He's an author. Got a great collection of short stories called The Name of the Nearest River. Maybe one of the best collection of short stories I've I've ever read. But Alex had a lot of... Like, his grandfather was a Vietnam veteran. He had a lot of firsthand accounts of stories... And he was an early reader of this book. And so when he first read Jeremiah, he said, yeah, this feels like a caricature. return. It feels feels paper thin, man. Like we need some napalm dripping from the jackfruit trees. Like you got to have those vivid details, those exact things that were really there. And he was able to help provide them. So much credit to him because as it stands now, I do feel like Jeremiah is something different. He's tragic. He's real. You know, he's not just this hero with a sniper rifle, you know, coming to save it all at the end of the day.
0: And you do give some credit to uh, Carlos Hathcock by naming his spotter Carlos.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I did. I really wasn't thinking that. No, I wasn't. But that is a good catch there, and I'll, I'll take it from this point on. I'll say, yeah, it's a nod to Carlos Hathcock.
0: He's a man who is haunted by his success in Vietnam as a sniper, and there are times when reveries overtake reality for
1: him. Yeah, there's much to be said on that. I wish I could remember the name of the novel. It wasn't a novel; it was a, a memoir, a nonfiction account. But it was something about violence. It, the book was about violence, and it was about military, and you know how we train young men, young women to kill, like how we do it. Because, you know, murdering someone isn't an easy task in the name of anything. So Jeremiah has that still in him. There are bolts and there are locks and there are vaults, just like there are in his junkyard where he has kept things hidden and stored away, you know, even from himself. And as this story progresses and as so much of the past is brought to light, he begins to lose his hold on those doors, on those gates that he's kept locked for so long. And so, yeah, it is. He he gets lost in those things. Those things come back to haunt him. They've really been the source of so much of all of his pain. And that was by design. I wanted us to see, like I was talking about the aftershocks of small town violence, But that's a really good point, and I've never really quite thought about it like this. You know, what we're really seeing are the aftershocks of, you know, organized militaristic
0: violence, you know, that is still causing this man grief all these years down the road. And you talk about small-time life, and there's, you know, the cliché that everyone knows your business. Yeah. So that means secrets are held tightly and ferociously. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's a huge part of... Bloodlines, secrets, all of these different things that are cliche when it comes to small towns, but they're cliche for a reason, and that's because they're true. You know, that's that's how an aphorism becomes an aphorism, is people say it so much or it say it one time and they're like, Yeah, that's right. And so that's exactly what this book's at the heart of this book too, is is our secrets. And I mean, even in an opening scene, without any spoilers, you know, we're at a homecoming football game. Hadn't been out much, out of the junkyard much. And he's so keenly aware of the people in the stands, of the other fathers who are walking their daughters down, you know, for homecoming, and how he's a grandfather that's walking his granddaughter down for homecoming. And it's not so much that anybody really says anything to him, but he's... Imagining the whispers or imagining the thoughts, imagining, you know, that these people know, you know, why he's there and her father's not. And that is a big deal. Perception is a big deal. Social standing is a big deal, you know, in small southern towns.
0: There's a lot of information in this book that gets revealed very slowly, so we're going to try to dance around most of that. Yeah. So just, you know, if, if I if I step too far, yeah, yeah. bring me back in. Definitely. But as you said, you know, there are those aphorisms and there are those sayings and cliches. And there's one they use in Britain about family lineage and it's called blood will out.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: Your lineage will prove true to yourself.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think even in here, one of our members of the the bad guy family, and I say bad guy with like air quotes, because something I've really tried to do with this book is any book I write, you know, is, is not just have a a paper cut out of bad guys but the ledfords are the family that are are running up against jeremiah fitzgeralds and and his stronghold there at this junkyard the main bad guy i guess we encounter the main antagonist is evel ledford so he's he's the son of bun ledford and anyway he actually says at one point in the creek during a chase scene you know blood is thicker than water and it's again an old cliche but that's kind of the whole point of what we're doing with this book. And, and what it's trying to say is, you know, the links to which people will go if their family is involved.
0: And especially with Evail, he also uses another blood phrase, Blut und Boden. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, is a skinhead,
1: but a, an unorthodox skinhead, an unorthodox white supremacist. He and his cousin, Dame Ray Belly, when the book opens are preparing, like, posters for this rally that Evel's father's got going. But as you come to kind of find out more about Evel, he spent time in prison. His head is shaved, not because he's a neo-Nazi skinhead in that way. It's because of a book he'd read on Tibetan monks, Buddhist monk. So he has this... He kind of stands outside this whole stereotypical white supremacist culture. He's a vegan. And all of that was just done, you know, with this eye for somebody to be, you know, he's a different, he's an outcast, even within that culture, he's an outcast. So that's Eval.
0: Well, I grew up in the Arkansas Ozarks too. I used to make a joke that the Ozarks, they were too racist to have slaves. <laughs> and, and the longer I go, the more That's it's not a joke.
1: A, no, it's not.
0: Because it's a long history of white supremacy, Christian nationalism up that way. You got Gordon Call, got in his big battle up that way. Ralph Forbes, you know, he was a yeah. white supremacist. The Klan and zinc outside of Harrison, Arkansas. Yep. It's all eat up with it up there.
1: Yep. Harrison makes a appearance in this book. I think do you did you or it might yeah, be yeah, my Yeah, it, it was war. You yeah, talked about the, the White war, Arkansas guys. Resistance, which is a fictional white supremacist group. Yeah, they're stationed in Harrison, and it's real. That buddy I mentioned earlier from Kentucky, Alex Taylor, he came went fishing with me, and one day we got rained out. We were on Crooked Creek fishing for smallmouth, and we got rained out, so we we're going to drive up to Branson, and, and we go up through Harrison and again this is a guy from Kentucky you know but we start getting closer and closer to Harrison and seeing some of these billboards you know these big mm-hmm. billboards from from the
0: knights right
1: oh I mean from anything and everything and and he's but I think like, it's
0: the knights of the Ku Klux Klan and zinc that put that, up those billboards I
1: think you're right and and so yes what you've said I mean they are there are these pockets that are there that are so far removed you know and Arkansas is I, I love talking about this because it's Right now, both of my first two books have, have centered in this Ozark Hill region. I, where I live now is actually in the River Valley. And then if you drive about five miles north, you get into a town called Dover. And there's a sign that literally says, Gateway to the Ozarks. You know, So where I'm right kind of in a borderline. But then over here in the eastern part of Arkansas, you have Delta culture. And it's completely different. Cultures are different. Geography's different. And it's so interesting to me, you know, for a a small square state to have so many different types because you're right, you know, like uh, slavery, things like that in in this northwest part of the state. I mean, we're talking much more like Missouri, you know, in that part where down in the eastern part, you're talking much more like Memphis, you know, much more like Mississippi. So it's a really kind of a state divided when it comes to culture and and history on that front.
0: And it seems everybody these days is talking about liminal spaces. Yeah. And it seems the, the River Valley is that liminal space for, for Arkansas.
1: It is. That's a really good way to put it. And it's nice for me. So I was born in Forest City, lived there until I was five. Both my parents were public school teachers in the Forest City School District and, like, born and bred Forest City. So, And then I moved. I moved to the River Valley. For me, it was such... I think like as a young, you know, soon to be novelist, it was really nice because there was nothing like being in different places. So every Christmas we'd come back to the Delta, every Thanksgiving we'd come back to the Delta, every summer we'd come back to the Delta. And it's like that old thing of when you're living between two places, you come and go and every time you change, you see all these differences. You know, it, br- it makes you see that place for what it is. The River Valley is a is this middle ground. You're right. I mean, we're in between Little Rock and Fayetteville, the northwest, you know, Northwest Arkansas, Walmart country, Tyson country, all that stuff. We're not that. And so yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it and it's a good place for someone to be from because you can kind of see all of the other places. Speaking of the River Valley, Kelly Joe Ford is another Arkansas author and she wrote a really great River Valley. Arkansas crime novel, thriller novel. And I'm trying to all of a sudden the title has left me. Let's see. Her first book was called Cotton Mouse. Forthcoming book is called The Hunt. And then why in the world has this one I'll think of it later. But it's a it's a actually it's set more like in Fort Smith, um, but a true, you know, river valley sort of sort of So you of got book. the
0: history of Judge Parker and everything. Oh there. man,
1: it's 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 really I mean, we live on the Lake Dardanelle. So talk like True Grit country, like we're looking overlooking Yale County, overlooking Mount Nebo, um and, down to Malvern and everything. Yeah, the whole Maddie Ross, you know, they just put in what's called the True Grit Trail and it starts right out, right out across. And so I go back to Kelly's book because as I was reading that, it was I mean, the water, the lake, the river, all of that, the dams, you know. It's it's right there. She does a really good job, and I swear I will think of the title before this is over.
0: And I just thought it was kind of funny that your family and you came from Forest City, which is the only point of elevation in that part of the state, and so then you go into a point of reverse. It's almost the mirror image of the valley. Yeah. No, that's that's a great that's a great catch. Yeah. So with Ozark Dogs, I sit around Taggart, which is not too far from Denton, where your first book, is this a Yonkotapha type thing going on? Good, <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I don't know. I I change the names always. I make fictional places because it's a small town, because, you know, I, I just want to make sure that people see, like, okay, this is a fictional town. But then, you know, I can't help but use real geographical locations, and I think that just comes from the richness of names that I come across in Arkansas. There's a place called Scald, Arkansas. A place that shows up in Ozark Dogs is, is a place called Gumlog, Arkansas. My in-laws actually live there and, and have some chicken houses and, and some farming area land. And so what I like to do is I take those real names and like in Don't Know Tough, there's a cave that I I use called Eden Falls Cave that comes in the climax. And those are all real, but like the geography doesn't match up. The maps are kind of wonky, you know, and and that's just me saying uh, I'm going to take my artistic license, you know, and use it. But it is important to me to be a representative of Arkansas and that good, bad, ugly, whatever, like I want my books in Arkansas We have an MMA fighter named Bryce Mitchell, a.k.a. Thug Nasty. He's this little white boy, and he won a fight in the last couple of years. A big fight. He's really doing pretty good in the MMA stuff. And afterwards, in an interview, like right after the fight, he's in the ring. They ask him a question, and he just takes the mic, and he says, Every time you put a mic in my face, I'm going to say Arkansas. And a part of me feels like, you know, like as a guy who's grown up there, and a state that I don't see a lot in literature, I don't see a lot on film or whatever, it's really important for me to make sure that Arkansas is the beating heart of my books. Now, Ozark Dogs does have what we call an Easter egg in it for Don't Know Tough. So if you've read Don't Know Tough... They do play the Denton Pirates, so this in that homecoming game. And there's a little bit of some hints toward maybe a little more resolution of what might have happened like in Don't Know Tough. But no, I don't see it as all being like one, like Faulkner, your fictional county, your fictional town, whatever it is. I don't necessarily see that happening, but for these first two, it was good because these stories run real parallel to
0: each other. You do play pretty on the nose with names because the name of the county is Craven County. Yeah. You have a gay, guy named Avail, which is like a combination of evil and prevail. <laughs> and then his brother Rudnick, which is like Redneck and Nudnick yeah. mixed together. Yeah. <laughs> so you're kind of gigging us in the ribs pretty good yeah. while we're going along.
1: Well, and I'm telling you, man, Stephen, I think some of that stuff must just be subconscious. I mean, these things that you're hitting on. Now, Avail, I always think that was, was close to the bone people have pointed that out before but yeah good catch on all the names
0: and belladonna belladonna
1: deadly nightshade
0: (laughs) (laughs) and bun if bun you just erase a little bit of that first in you get burn
1: burn oh that is really neat and i swear i haven't thought of any of that before
0: the last name of joe and and jeremiah fitzgeralds it's not fitzgerald it's j-u-r-l-s and that reminds me, I had a barber when I was growing up. His name was Dirl, as D E R L.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I got the Fitzgerald's name from, you know, they those commercials where they're like selling like big quantities of land, like land auctions. Mm-hmm. And there was some company who was doing these commercials a few years back, and the guy's name was like Bobby Fitzgerald's. And it was spelled, and I just had never seen a spelling like that. And I thought it was so interesting, like so neat to see with, with the I, you know, and then sounded out Fitzgerald's. So, yeah, that's where that came from. A land auctioneer.
0: Yeah. Back in the day, in the early 80s, Susan McDougall and her husband, who later got caught up in some of the Clinton stuff, and she actually went to jail for refusing to, to testify against Clinton. They were developing land first near Maumel, and then they had a place called Possum Grape. Mm. And as videos of her riding a horse through the hills and saying, mm-hmm. you, you need to invest in Possum Grape. <laughs> Possum Grape, Pickles Gap, Toad Suck,
1: I mean, Bald Knob. Nah, there's a lot of good names that I can come by it naturally.
0: You mentioned that the geography doesn't quite line up, and also, maybe this is a little bit of science fiction alternate history, because in this, there's a nuclear power plant Mm -hmm. that shares the name with a true-life nuclear power plant, but this one shuttered because of an accident.
1: Yeah, so there is. So in my backyard, like I said, we we live on a reservoir of the Arkansas River called Lake Dardanelle. Lake Dardanelle is a man-made lake, which was dammed up from the Arkansas River when nuclear one came in, energy- came in and was going to put a big nuclear plant right out here in, in Russellville. it's kind of what Russellville known for. Like there's T-shirts, you know, say Russ Vegas, and they have like the nuke plant on them, like rising up from them without giving too much away. I, I just, for this book, it felt really neat to have used that setting and, and it, that tower does definitely play into the book. At the end of the book, we have these things like evacuation routes, you know, and things all around town, you know, and I can remember growing up like when 9-11 happened. I mean, it was a silly thing to be worried about, but, you know, we're all in our huddled around those televisions that they roll in on the TV stands, you know, um, and some somebody starts worrying like, well, are they going to attack the nuclear plant? You know, like that's what everybody starts saying. And so. That idea that one of these things could shudder, you know, or that they could go down and we would have to follow these evacuation routes, you know, up up into the mountains or, or whatever. I think as a child growing up there, that was always kind of heavy. You know, that was heavy to to think about. Um, and then for the book, it was just a way to show this town, what this town, you know, had relied on, what it was now. There's also some some pretty serious, like we we've already talked about having— uh, white supremacist involved. So we needed something to cause that, you know, like, like you said, like up in the hills where it's just a bunch of white people, there are white supremacists, you know, but in, for a novel, I needed them to have something to rub against, you know, I needed them to have somebody to be pissed at and be causing, you know, some, some issues. So that fall of that tower and, and the decline of that nuclear plant, um, that helps kind of work that stuff in there.
0: Yeah, it's starting to scare me a little bit because in the past few months there's been some white supremacist or at least accelerationist people that have been attacking power plants oh. out east in like North Carolina and Pennsylvania mm. and because they kind of want the fall of society mm. and uh, everything going dark is yeah. one of the things they think could help do it. Ah,
1: man, no. The, none of that. None of that in Ozark Dogs. The, the, the tower was... The tower was uh, down and out of commission long before Eval or Bunn came along.
0: But Bunn did, used to work at the, yeah, the tower. He was a and riveter. in fact, it was the uh, the fall of the plant that kind of started their bad actions going along. That is true. That is true. Yeah. So without the light, <laughs> That's right. the dark they prospered in darkness. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And he only has one man, one eye for- <laughs> <laughs>
1: That is right. Von is does have a, a melted side of half of his face.
0: And I was thinking with those evac routes around the Russellville plant where Jeremiah's son and Joe's father is. He's in Cummins Prison, which isn't too far from Pine Bluff. Mm-hmm. And there's evac route signs all over there because of the nerve gas factory they had down there.
1: Oh, my gosh. I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, you go around and they have, says, you know, when you see these lights flashing, go this way.
1: Mm, that's great. What I always like about driving through where the big prisons are, is the sign, Hitchhikers May Be Escaping Convicts. As an English literature major... um, Oh, yeah, big
0: Flannery O'Connor fan.
1: Well, hitchhikers may be escaping convicts. You know, there's two ways to read that sign. Hitchhikers may be convicts who have just escaped. And hitchhikers may be actually actively escaping, like running from convicts. You know, so it's always it's always a great sign to think like, well, if somebody comes running, like maybe I should save them. Maybe they're in the act of escaping from a convict, or or maybe not. Maybe they're actually. So I well, I,
0: but, I, I would defer to a good man is hard to find on that one. Oh
1: man, that's a yeah, yeah. Uh, avoid the misfit. the misfit. Avoid the misfit. Yeah, it's good.
0: Joe. Senior in high school, and she has gotten herself into a position where she might be able to win homecoming queen. So this means Jeremiah is going to have to go into town.
1: Yeah, and he does not want to. So his junkyard is like a stronghold. It's an armory. It's got a vault inside of it that he keeps what he calls the friends, friends from his past, which are not only weapons, but also a lot of books. He's very well read. That goes back to exactly what I was saying before, where it's all about perception. You know, I feel like in a bigger city and I haven't spent just a ton of time. I lived in Sweden for a year, lived in South Florida for a year, and I was new to those places. So it always felt like you could disappear easier. You could you could go incognito, you know, easier. But for me, like being raised in this town, my wife was raised in this town where we live now, it's a town of about twenty five thousand. I don't know. it's just like any your business is out there, you know when something goes wrong in the past when there's something that is like seen as a stain on your reputation or it's hard to be there in that place and that not be what you feel. That's what jeremiah that's what the homecoming that i mean of course he's not going to miss Joe's homecoming, but that's where his hesitation's coming from.
0: And also, it's kind of a nice metaphor for being quarantined during the COVID Uh, epidemic. And also just the kind of way we've isolated ourselves, that we we live in our own bubbles nowadays.
1: Yeah, that's a very good metaphor. And this book was actually written pre-pandemic. So I wrote my first novel, Don't Know Tough. I finished it in like 2016, 2017. The same year, I followed it up with this one in like 2017, 2018. So it's been in one of those manuscripts that have been done when I finally got my foot in the door, I had some books to choose from, so that's been really nice because you don't have to feel that pressure of, okay, I just wrote and published this one, now I got to turn around and write another one. I've I've been able
0: to to have some choices. What kind of cycle do you hope to get on?
1: Well, right now we're working on the book a year. So I was in Memphis this time last year with Don't Know Tough. That's about where we are right now. Working, looking at twenty twenty four. I will say, if things get pushed to the summer. I will be absolutely thrilled because this time of year is really hard because of weather, Uh, especially all through the South. Like last year, I was in Memphis here doing a book event with Ace Atkins, and we go into Novel Bookstore like 6 o'clock. It's the last week of March, and we come out an hour and a half later, and there's six inches of snow all over everything. This year, yeah, last week I was in Oxford and Jackson. And every place I went, a tornado siren was going off. you know things are getting cancelled things are so being in the south and being in tornado alley is is not a good time for book events, you know in the spring.
0: Football finds its way into Ozark dogs as well. Who's young Colt Dillard, and what kind of arm does he have?
1: Colt Dillard is the sophomore quarterback for the Taggard Bulldogs, and for those that don't know i'm I was a big football guy, so started playing my first tackle football season in third grade and then went all the way through high school playing quarterback, played college one year, Florida Atlantic, one year at Ouachita Baptist University, and then played a season overseas in Sweden, coached five years of high school football. So it was about, ended up being about 20 straight years of football. And that's the big setting for my first novel, Don't Know Tough. And then this book, We get like an opening that Rob spins around a homecoming game. And that's kind of where we're introduced to Colt Dillard. Yeah, it's not a spoiler, but Colt is much to Jeremiah's chagrin. He is a boyfriend-ish. It's it's unclear early, you know, whether he's a boy that's a friend or an actual boyfriend. And a lot of that has to do with Joanna, you know, not wanting to admit that to her grandfather who's been so protective of her. So... That's who Colt Dillard is. Now, in regard to his arm, he does do a pretty good job of dismantling the Denton Pirates in that, in that homecoming win.
0: And it did feel like Arkansas because it seems like every other team is either named Pirates or Bulldogs in that section. Good.
1: Yeah, that is. That's for sure. Bulldogs especially. Um, there's a lot of Bulldog mascots in Arkansas.
0: I, I grew up in Springdale. they the Bulldogs. Springdale, Bulldogs. The town <laughs> just south was Fayetteville, the Bulldogs. Yeah. They were purple. We were red. So it was the red dogs versus the purple pups. <laughs> well, we were the cyclones.
1: cyclones. Russellville Cyclones, which isn't exactly right. I mean, it should be Russellville Tornadoes, you would think. But.
0: Yeah, but for Arkansas Tech, you got the Wonder Boys. And then,
1: whoa, oh, the Wonder Boys. Again, the, the
0: Golden Sun. I like that so much better for the, the women. The Golden
1: Suns, um,
0: the Southern Arkansas University Mule, Mule
1: Riders. What yeah. oh, was Monash, OBU? Tigers. Tigers, Arkansas Monticello Bowl, mm-hmm. So I mean, we talking about names, man. We got them.
0: I have to give credit. I went to a school named Hendricks for a while, and they were called the Warriors. And so they changed to a Scottish clan warrior <laughs> instead of uh, a Native American warrior. There you go. And so they they kind of salvaged the name.
1: Yeah, that uh, Hendricks is a place full of smart people. I could see him pulling pulling something.
0: So football is a big deal in this town. So much so you can make a transition out of coaching football to leading a church. Ah, yeah. Brother Frank. Brother Frank. Brother Frank's the preacher of Christ Zone. Um, and
1: Christ Zone is a recently renovated Walmart space that they've pulled out the cash registers and have turned it into a non-denominational. Uh, you got the smoke machines and the laser lights. and Praise hot, band. Praise band. Wh- wh- is it gun- worship
0: music they call it?
1: Yeah, it is, man. And that's a big deal. Like, so this is why these books are, I don't know, they're so complicated for me because, you know, if you're reading this book from, and you live in New York City, like, you think I'm just making all this stuff up, but like, it's not, you know, like, and you know that, like being from Arkansas. So it is, it's always complicated. And I get those letters, you know, from people in Arkansas. Like I was talking about Bryce Mitchell and. I'm going to put a mic in my face, and I'm going to say Arkansas, and I am. But the late, great Barry Hannah, man, he had this one thing he said one time really stuck with me, and he said, you know, I'll say anything as long as it's true. I'll read anything as long as it's true. And that has always been kind of what I'm trying to do with my writing. Like, I'll write anything as long as it's true. Like, true to me, true to what I see, you know, what I feel. And so, yeah, you start taking on the church and high school football, and I don't know that I'm taking any of that stuff on. I'm just trying to tell the truth. You know, I'm just trying to tell the truth of what I see. So Christ Zone and Brother Frank, and, yes, Brother Frank was a high school football coach who took a sabbatical to go and become a preacher. When word got round that there was a good group of junior high boys, you know, coming up through the ranks, he hopped back over to being a being a coach again. Which is a beautiful Southern coach move, you know, pastor to coach, and then all back around again. It's all kind of the same. I was a head football coach at the age of 26 for a pretty good sized school in Arkansas, and I have long since held by, I tell people it's like being the sheriff, the mayor, and a youth pastor, like all wrapped into one one occupation, one job title.
0: And they don't pay you
1: enough. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. I lasted two years. We went one in 19. Oh. And I got out all together and started writing novels. So it might have been the best thing. <laughs> might have been the best thing that ever happened to me. If I hadn't got my butt kicked like that, I don't know that I'd
0: ever stopped. So what, what was the holes on the team that kept you from getting it done?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Well, it could have just been me. So I had played, you know, professionally overseas and in college. And so I think I got the job because of my, I'd coached two years previous to that. And we'd done really well. I was coaching in a town called Arkadelphia, which is where Ouachita is. So I was kind of in my backyard where I'd played college quarterback. And I was the offensive coordinator and we did really well and only lost two games in those two seasons. And then, a head coaching job came open in the River Valley area. And so I ran up there and took that job, probably got it, like I said, because of my playing pedigree and not my two years, you know. And I was 26, and it – I don't – like I said, maybe it was me, but, I mean – the team wasn't that great coming in either. They had had some struggles for the last couple of years. They'd had a couple of winless seasons, but I was young and dumb and thought I was God's gift to football. So I was going to turn them all around. <laughs> and I just about killed myself, man, trying to like, I talking about having these manuscripts and having extra books in the backlist. And I'll talk to other authors and they're like, how are you doing this, man? Like, how, what you must be so like work so many hours. Do and I was like, this ain't nothing on being a high school football coach in the in the South, you know, in regard to hours, like in regard to time. And so my wife, you know, she married a football coach. So that's what she kind of signed on for in regard to like time, you know, like me being away from the house and being at the field house or being traveling to games. Then I became a writer. And so she's really cool about letting me work. We have two kids before the kids get up, after the kids go down. You can get a lot done if you really write and write six days a week for about two hours a day, you know, of pure creation, you know, before the sun comes up kind of stuff, not just looking at Facebook and calling yourself, you know, <laughs> writing or whatever. What was
0: your time in Sweden like?
1: It was absolutely transformative. I had applied to all sorts of MFA programs straight out of college. So I was, again, that strange combination of being the college quarterback slash English lit major at a small Baptist college, you know, where there were like six English lit seniors and I was the only male. And I also happened to be the university's quarterback, you know, so it was a weird combination and I had every intention of going off and trying to get an MFA. And then this team from Sweden comes calling and I wind up going over there because I just couldn't pass it up. And it was just great. It was laid back. It made me love football again because it's kind of like an exhibition game, every game over there, you know, like it wasn't... A lot of the fans didn't really know, you know, what it was. They were coming. It was almost like like wrestling or something, you know, like <laughs> if wrestling rolls into town, you know, the football game. But it made me love it because all the pressure was removed. It was really like playing for fun, you know, again. Sweden is probably, I don't know, I've been to a lot of other European countries and and foreign countries, but I've not lived in any like that for a year. But it was such an easy country to assimilate to. Even 70-year-old women in the grocery store spoke English, you know, so it wasn't like if you were in France or something, you probably wouldn't be the same as easy to talk to people. At that time, at least, and this was in like 2011, there was a real interest in like, concern and love for american culture like they watched american tv shows how i met your mother was huge at that time i remember they were all about that and so it was easy to be an american where i don't think that's always the same case you know in in other countries you know you might not be welcome with such open arms but i still have contact with a lot of the guys i played with over there some swedish guys and it was beautiful man i was so hooked i like there's another chance where life could have diverged because I was so locked into that. There's a chance. I'm 35 now. I still think I got it. Like there's if if this one diversion <laughs> hadn't happened, I might still be because I had signed a contract to play for Cannes France, so a football team in the French Riviera called the Cannes Iron Mask, and I was just going to be home for three months. But I met this blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl who was from my hometown, I graduated a year behind me, and. We knew each other and grew up close, but it ne- we started going on a couple of dates. And three months later, I broke the contract with France. I had long hair at the time, which I have no hair now. I'm, I'm Mr. Clean, bald. But she told me to get a haircut and get a real job. And the only thing I had that I could get a job doing was coaching football. And that's how I became <laughs> a high school football coach. And then we got married a couple years later.
0: I went to see the, the Hamburg Blue Devils play oh, football nice. when, when I lived in Hamburg and It was just a relaxed day. I mean, it uh, was so chill. Yeah, man.
1: Yeah, we played, let's see, we played in Kiel, the Mm -hmm. Kiel Baltic Hurricanes. That was like one of our very first games. But yeah, we got to play like in Germany and Austria. And, you know, that was cool to get to travel to those places and play those games.
0: I visited Stockholm and Uppsala once about 20 years ago. And the thing that struck me about Stockholm, 7-Elevens and candy stores Uh, everywhere. Everywhere. Couldn't turn around without hitting a candy store.
1: It is crazy, you know. And then liquor stores in Sweden were really interesting. They were called System Belaget, and it was run by the government. So the whole liquor, like, if you want real liquor, like, you could get what, like, if you wanted a Bud Light, I don't even think they really had Bud Light, but the equivalent of it, like, at a gas station, you could get it. But, like, in Sweden, they call that people's beer. And it was like, you know, like, like that's for the babies. Like, that's for the kids, you know. So... It was this real monopoly from the government where they the only place you could get real liquor was at you know these government run system below liquor well, oh
0: there's a lot of states like that too oh really Virginia got ABC uh, Massachusetts down in Mississippi the uh, state is the only liquor distributor there is ah. so they 've got a very small list so you can 't get much wine oh. a good selection of wine down in Mississippi because the state just doesn 't carry that much oh wow. I was a warehouse manager for a chain of liquor stores up in Springdale. (laughs) That was when I first got out of college. I couldn't find a a job in political science. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I got a job working in a liquor store, and this man named Harold Dean Hewitt, that Arkansas at the time, you could only own one liquor store. And so, like, everyone in his family owned a liquor store. Wow. (laughs) And it it was called the the Springdale Liquor Association. (laughs) And I got to be the warehouse manager after a few months. The former manager got to manage a brand-new store that was going up. And so we had a warehouse in the back of the flagship store, which was on the county line, because Benton County, where Bentonville and Rogers was, was dry at the time. And then behind his house across the street, he had a warehouse where we kept the beer. We'd buy pallets and pallets and pallets of beer on sale. And then when they would go off sale, would bring that over, and so extra profit. (laughs) And then there was another warehouse behind the the flagship store where when liquor went on sale, I remember handing over a check for like $125,000 just for Crown Royal. Just hundreds of cases of Crown Royal would buy when they went on special. And he had been selling liquor there for almost 50 years in Springdale. One robbery. Oh, yeah. And that one fella didn't turn out too well. God. So we had a, a closed circuit radio system in between the stores and nobody messed with Mr. Hewitt. Mm. He he bought a a Mercedes S Class V twelve in Tulsa. <laughs> cash money.
1: Oh, that sounds like a like a good another good novel. Uh. and the
0: the IRS came up to him and said, Mr. Hewitt, we see you don't have a checking account. He said, didn't know there was law had to have one.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mister Hewitt had it figured out.
0: yep mm-hmm. come in, take a few bucks out of the cash register while I was working.
1: <laughs> you, we, it was the it was his bank. He had his own <laughs> bank going.
0: There is the county sheriff of Craven County, Mona McNabb, and she's also in the legacy business. Her father was the sheriff when Jeremiah's son got in so much trouble.
1: So yeah, and it it is. I mean, you're doing such a good job too, man. Of of following and finding these things that, that I did not even, you know, see, but I I do, I think you get into that space as a creator and the theme, if it's really, if you're in that flow, then they just come out because you're right. Like Mona is living with her own past and her past is that her father was the sheriff so she's got this own kind of secret, kind of shadow, kind of he did kind of a sketchy job or there were questions about how he handled Jeremiah's son's case. And so as she comes into the picture in this book, she's trying to rectify some of the sins of her father, you know, the, her past and set things straight. And she's working her tail off, you know, trying to do it right. So, of course, you know, when Jeremiah and everything gets going, Mona is there to, to try and make it right. She's, she's kind of the voice of reason.
0: But if you're looking for heroes in this book, good luck.
1: Yeah, it's dark, man. And I get asked about that. My first book was dark. You know, it's not a like I said, it's not like a like a made for Hollywood sort of thing. I don't think. You know, it's much more I'm trying to think of. Larry Brown was a favorite author of mine. Mississippi author Larry Brown, Harry Cruz. Uh, like
0: I mentioned, yeah, Feast night. of Snakes would be a great football analog for you. Yeah, I love Feast of
1: Snakes, the Rattlesnake Roundup,
0: Boss Rattler. Yeah, dude. And I don't know.
1: I mean, these are different from that. Like they have more. Like it's probably not pure Southern literature like that. But that it's more the vein. You know what I'm going for is is that sort of stuff. And and like I said, I wrote these books back uh, years ago, back before my wife and I had children. And I keep looking and thinking, like, okay, like, life's pretty good. Like, we don't have to write, like, these horrible, tragic, you know, dark stories. And every time I say this sort of stuff on, like, interviews, the interviewer's always like, no, no, it's the, like, because I don't do a good job of, of selling selling the book, but I do want people to know, you know, what they're getting into. Because here's why. Is I think every book that I found, the reason that I do is I write these books... Because this is like what scares me. It's the same way I think horror works, like good horror writers. And I'm not a fan of horror. I don't read a lot of horror. I don't have anything against it. I don't watch scary movies because they scare me, you know, to death. But I think to be a good novelist or someone especially that writes this sort of stuff, the gritty stuff, the real stuff, the number one thing you have to have is empathy. Empathy. And these are the things that scare me the most about the people I'm around, the people I see. You know, you find an issue, a topic. You find something like the cycle of poverty, and you start scraping away at it. You have that initial idea, but you keep that idea and you go for it. And so that's why I think where they are. And if I'm holding that Barry Hanna quote, you know, I'll read anything as long as it's true. I'll say anything as long as it's true. I'll write anything as long as it's true. Then I feel like I can't ever cheat them at the ending. If I've created real characters, if I've created real people that I feel like are real, you know, on the page, you know, the inclination is to give everybody like a happily ever after sort of ending and all that. But I don't always know that that's true, you know, that that's the way it's really going to play out. So that's what my books, what I try to aim to do.
0: Now, you coming from a middle-class family, parents are teachers, and you've taught and coached and now mm-hmm. uh, you're writing for the paper and teaching and coaching yourself. And do you ever feel conflicted writing about folks on the margin when that's not really your, you you see it, but it's not your personal experience?
1: So, yeah, I grew up watching my parents take kids home after school. You know, I grew up real close to seeing a lot of those students. And then when I became a coach, it's almost like you're one step closer because now you're around them even more time throughout the day, You know, students who are really struggling with poverty. So I would take those kids home after practice too, or we would get them you know, meals. So I'm just saying that to say that to be a novelist, like I kind of hit on this earlier, it's that empathy bone. Like that stuff is so deep in me. Now, again, no, I have never struggled for my next meal. But I think a novelist is given like if, as a writer, as a novelist, a person who's, who's making up stories, I'm not writing a memoir. I'm not writing, you know, some sort of auto-fiction, you know, about myself. I'm writing novels. And so these are stories that are made up. So these are stories that matter immensely to me, things that I've seen and encountered and gotten really close to. But at the end of the day, you know, they're fabrications and novels and things that are made up. So, yeah, I feel pretty good about it.
0: And in that empathy... You know, a lot of folks can call this noir. Yeah. And a lot of folks concentrate on noir being kind of a nihilistic thing. But it shows that, you know, we're all fallen. And that's one of the major lines of Christianity, that we're all fallen. Uh And that we all need redemption. And in this book, everyone, every single person ends up doing something they don't want to do. Yeah. But they have the reasons. Yeah. So here's a,
1: a true story. I didn't know what noir was <laughs> until my first novel came out because what happened was the day my don't know stuff came out it got reviewed in the new york times and one of the opening lines that sarah wyman the, the new york times reviewer used is like top shelf southern noir and so my dad calls me like that morning he's like hey son what's what's noir you know and i'm like and so he says noir you know what's noir I'm like that. I don't know. You know, I'd heard it. I'd seen it. But and it's a a tricky term to define. You know, it is a tricky term to define. But I, Stephen, ask myself this question all the time because I don't always know why these books go the direction they go. I don't always know why the dark stuff, you know, is that my view? You know, is that really how am I that nihilistic? I, I don't think so. I mean, I. I don't feel that way like in my heart. So it's a good question. It's something as, again, that I wrote these books in an earlier stage in life, maybe. You know, I'm hoping that as I get older, maybe I'll find more of the silver lining, more of the light. But no, I don't know. I, I don't know what it says other than you get into a story, you begin crafting a story, you begin writing a story. And in many ways, you have to just go where that story takes you with the people and the characters you've created. And I think a lot of times with the people that I am dealing with and the stories that I've seen play out for these people, I do try to give hope. At the end of every novel, I would say there is hope at the end of Ozark Dogs, but all the choices and, and the the tragedies that come before that that get us there, it's almost like I just there's no other way, you know, for for characters like these
0: to make it through. Well, you talked about how this stuff scares you. Yeah, and, I mean it's scary. I mean you. Go into parts of our state, and you hurt, and you're afraid. Yeah. What you see, someone in the early days of crime fiction said the the point of a crime novel isn't necessarily to who done it and right. to solve that, it is the restoration of order.
1: Mm-hmm. That is such a good way to think about it, and that my one of my favorite crime novelists of all time is Elmore Leonard. So Elmore Leonard is outside of this camp of, like, Daniel Woodrell and, like, the darker stuff. Like, Elmore Leonard is maybe, like, screwball noir, you know, very zany, very dark comedy in some way. So, like, he wrote Get Shorty. He wrote Out of Sight, which were both movies with, like, Get Shorty John Travolta out of sight and Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney. But what I always like about Elmore Leonard, to what you said is I never really care what happens in an Elmore Leonard novel. The plots sometimes go all over the place. There's not the big inciting event hook, you know, right off the bat. It's just the way he tells the story. It's his line-by-line line writing, you know. And for me, that is something that even with these earlier books, I don't know that I was as attuned to that with these books, but it's still it's something that's really important to me. You know, it's not so much about the big twist or the big reveal Not that this book doesn't have its twists and reveals, but it was always more of an organic thing about just the feel, you know? Is the feel right? Are you really getting the story down and getting it true to these characters? Because, yeah, at the end, you want the restoration of justice. Is that what you said? Order. It's the the restoration restoration of order. order. Yeah, that's great.
0: Which, for some people, works out, and for some people, that's not such a great thing. that's right. I remember I was listening to an audiobook of one of the Raylan Givens books mm. and the person reading it, it might've been Ed Asner and man, he was fabulous, but he said, uh, Cape Jurado for <laughs> Cape and <Girardo. laughs> It just made me
1: laugh. It's tough, man. I think I told you I've done my, both audio books. So I, I recorded the audiobook for Don't Know Tough and Ozark Dogs myself. And boy, it's tough. Like you well know being, having everything recorded. Like it took us about twenty-three studio hours to get about eight hours of recorded audio. That was for the first time around, and we did a little better the second time.
0: I worked up at the NPR station at Fayetteville for a while, and we had the show called Ozarks at Large. i it's still on the air. Yeah, Kyle is a wonderful fellow that runs it. Have you ever talked to uh-uh. Kyle before? But I've heard that show. I listen to NPR every morning. One of the reporters went down and did a piece at Nuclear One, and she said "nuclear" every single time, and. I was working the early morning shift. I was just running the board and started getting these telephone calls. (laughs) Call after call at 6 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Yeah, Call after call. And so I just started picking up the phone going, KUF Pronunciation Bureau. How can I direct your call? Oh, yes. Oh, you're aware of the problem. I said, yes, goodness gracious, yes. That
1: was something that came up when we were recording this because I was saying, what was I saying? I was saying Nuclear. And and it got me all confused because the director for this audio thing he was from California, and so he was like, "It's new. Nu- it's what is it? What's the proper it's, it's pronunciation?" It's nuclear. Nuclear. And I was that's saying the, the, nuclear. The, the, I think uh, I was saying nuclear. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Well, I think I'm just going to say it like this because that's the way it's pronounced. Because that's the way, yeah. So,
0: but yeah, you look at the word. There's only one U in the word. Yeah, nuclear." Nuclear. nuclear. It's like new and
1: clear. Nuclear. I know. I'm trying to think nu- nuclear. Yeah. I think that's what we all say around there.
0: Yeah. Nuclear. I mean, uh, I heard it growing up. Nuclear I mean, I actually plan. had to. The get nuke. It. I'm sure it comes from people saying the nuke, you know, like nuclear. But I mean, there's all sorts of nuclear. words that we had our own pronunciation oh, for. Oh, exactly. I know.
1: And that is, that's one interesting thing about doing the audio stuff because, you know, they've got a whole list. And like my first book, half of it's written in dialect. So written in. Like vernacular of a high school football player, and so Lord, they had a
0: chart like three pages long, you know, of
1: words that that had to be like I got to leave as the Arkansas idioms and things like that.
0: Yeah, because I noticed in the dialogue from the Ledfords, they talked more more hill like and yeah. said "eyes" yeah. instead of "I am." And even though I grew up in Springdale, which is on the edge of the Ozarks, you know, I just don't remember hearing folks say that. So yeah. even that small area, oh
1: yeah, so many and that different. difference so many different dialects throughout throughout our state. I love, like I said, coming to the Delta, it's a whole different, whole different rhythm.
0: Don't want to say who, but one of the characters in the book shares kind of your biography of starting off in the Delta and moving into the River Valley, and I thought it was a really interesting choice on who you chose to do that with because it's a person who is really on the down and out, and you chose to give them that part of yourself, mm-hmm. which I thought was Very generous on your part. But also remember hearing one writer said, you know, you don't put yourself into one of the characters. You put yourself into all of the characters.
1: Uh, Yeah, that is so true. And it's actually not the first time I've done it either. My main character in Don't Know Tough has that same same background. It's weird to think about because, like I said, this is a, a motley crew of characters and there's a lot of them. And so it becomes more like especially as I'm going around having to talk about the book and these different things. It makes you start looking at yourself and thinking, you know, what what does all this mean? You know, you talk about therapy, write a novel and then then tell you see what you think about yourself after it's all done.
0: And going to Sweden and seeing another culture and being immersed in that and then coming back. Uh, yeah. To Lake Dardanelle and Russellville. Yeah. I mean, that must have given you a, a heck of a lot of perspective.
1: Yeah. And I had done it, you know, once before my freshman year in college, I'd gone to South Florida, which might as well have been a different country as well. Days where I thought, and I've said this before, you know, that I think being in South Florida, I was in Boca Raton, which is beautiful. And, you know, but just there were so many different cultures in that one like melting pot. And so I'd done that once, and then I got to, like, for a year I was in South Florida, came back, did the rest of my college. Then I was, you know, a year in Sweden, came back, and did the rest of my adult life so far in Arkansas. And so, yeah, there's nothing like getting away to let you see that people are just people. And I swear, like, a lot of the problems we have today in our world and a lot of the problems I see in Arkansas, like, I always think, if God, if these people could just go somewhere and, you know, live with people that are that they think are a problem or that are not like them and be forced to live there for like a year, I sure think it would. Because the problem is they don't – they hadn't gone anywhere else. Two problems, I guess. They Some of them are unable, you know, just by means. But a lot of people just don't want to go anywhere. <laughs> you know, like they don't want to go see another, you know, country or go see another different part of the state or different part of our country that they think might – you know, be problematic. They don't want to go there. But I still, I stand by that, that traveling and, and getting some experiences outside of where you were born and raised, it's big to open up people's minds and to give them, give them a chance to see, see people as people.
0: Well, and you talk about weird Arkansas place names, Boca Raton, Boca, Rat Mouth. The,
1: the mouth of the rat. That's exactly right. And it really kind of looks like it, like on a map. That's where the name comes from.
0: There is a a character in the book. There's been a lot of immigration into Arkansas from Mexico and Salvadoran folks coming up, and in Northwest Arkansas, people from the Marshall Islands even. Mm -hmm. So, from what was a very white region has become integrated in its own way—not the traditional American Southern sense of white and black folks living together, but white and Latino folks living together.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that was it. I mean, that was what we were talking about earlier. You know, what we were alluding to with the fall of the tower and the rise of other industries. And so that is where we get to play out some of this white supremacy stuff with this book, you know, because that is even, you know, that is what we've seen immigration-wise and things like that. It's another one of those kind of gray zone areas, one of those hot topic areas that as a novelist, it's fun, you know, to play with those things and see how, especially in like a crime novel, how they can go. And that the main character in that regard, his name's Guillermo Torres, and he was a lot of fun to write too, maybe. Maybe as, as much fun as anyone.
0: Well, and he lives up to his name because he, there's a lot of bull in what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of bull, yeah. I remember one day I was looking at the Northwest Arkansas, it was the Springdale News when it was still called that. Uh, the Morning News of Northwest Arkansas later it was called online and it said you know, three people diagnosed with leprosy. And I said, what the hell? Yeah. And so I looked it up, and it was uh, folks from the Marshall Islands who lived in the area because it's the largest population of people from the Marshall Islands live in northwest Arkansas. And it turns out uh, Pacific Islanders are much more susceptible to the bacteria that causes leprosy, which the official name is Hansen disease. It's like around the world it's around 3% people are susceptible to Mm. the bacteria. But for, like, Pacific Islanders it's, like, Thirty or forty percent of people oh, wow. are and it's easily treatable with uh yeah. with antibiotics nowadays, but it was just wild to see leprosy
1: yeah, that is crazy,
0: yeah, I would really like for someone in that community up there to be able to write the story because it's had to be so bizarre coming from the middle of the Pacific Ocean into we had a bunch of
1: Marshallese kids played on the football coach my when I was head coach, I was at Clarksville and they had absolutely no English skills, parents with no English skills. The stories that we were told, you know, were that, like, they were divers of some sort, like, before they came over here, like, breathing through, you know, tubes. And, and then they had crazy, like, names that were, like, blue two, like, B-L-U-E two. And I was always like, what is with these names? And it was like when they got here, like, those were the only English words that they knew. So when they asked them what their names were, you know, one was Sir Nathan, you know, Sir Nathan, Sir, when they asked what's your name, you know, so you're right, man. I mean, there are some stories ripe for telling from that world.
0: Well, you said this book had been in the drawer for a little bit. What's coming up for next year?
1: So I'm trying to think. I'm never quite sure on how much I'm allowed to say, you know, like none of this stuff is ever final until it's final. But I will just say, like, so, yes, if Lord willing, and the Creek Don't Rise, the 2024 book is a book that's going to, the title is called Broiler, and it's a same sort of thing set in a chicken plant, and it's actually in northwest Arkansas this time. We've moved out of the Ozarks into the Boston Mountains. There's just a lot of good headlines that we see with workers there, issues there, again, students I've had that have been I used to teach an ALE program so these were kids you know who were in alternative learning and they would work these 10-hour shifts on the line you know chopping the left hind leg off of a broiler chicken for 10 straight hours and then they'd come to school the next morning and so yeah broiler so we'll see like I said none of that's finalized but if I had to if I had to put my money on it I <laughs> that's bro- the one I think broiler will be the one that people will see next
0: well, Eli, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, and hopefully we'll get a chance to talk next year about Broiler. Thanks so much for having me, Stephen. Really Take care enjoyed now. It. Eli Craner is the author of the novel Ozark Dogs, which is published by Soho Crime. I'm Stephen Usri, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.